Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Welcome. We are so glad you're here. Um, It has been said that the only person who likes change is a baby with a diaper. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, because not all of us enjoy change in life. Now, some of you are like change fanatics and you just have freaks would probably be the better word. And you have to change things all the time. I wasn't. I have not been like that most of my life. I'm a structure, routine kind of person, and change for most of my life has been very, very difficult for me. But we started this series in transitions last week with the recognition of this: life is in a constant state of change, and change often leads to transitions in life. We recognize that. Life happens, and change happens, whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, and transitions are a part of that, and transitions are inevitable. Sometimes we choose them. Sometimes they choose us. And we spend a little bit of time looking at how transitions are different from just normal change. Transitions work differently than we think, because transition actually starts with an end, and it ends with a beginning. And in the middle, what we're going to look at today is this space in between. This, this, we're not where we used to be, but we're not yet where we're headed. We're not quite sure where we're at. And the reason all of this is important is because when we mistake change for transition, we're missing a deeper, an inner transformation that is needing to take place in our lives. And that's how we find ourselves in habits and routines, repeating and reliving patterns in life, always kind of ending back up in the same place, wondering what is going on here. It's because we have not progressed through the transition of our life. And last week we looked at endings in the life of Naomi, her chapter one, eight different endings, tragic heartbreaking, life-changing endings. And many of you this week, you've been processing through those endings. You've been recognizing your own, listening to them. You've been like, no, I'm right in the midst of that. You've been grieving through them. And there's been a lot of conversations and prayers over this last week. And before we jump into the space in between today, I just want to say, if that's where you are at and you're still there, there are so many resources available for you to plug into to help you navigate through the ending and the grief of an ending. If it's counseling or or a therapist would be great. Man, I cannot encourage you enough to meet with a counselor, to meet with a therapist. If you want to go to uh, the Blue Oaks website under messages in the archive that we have, Pastor Matt has taught some incredible messages on grieving. You can look those up. There's, There's numerous resources on our website. But reach out, connect into whatever you need to to work through the grief of an ending. We talked about to feel all the feels of it. But today we move into the the next stage, the second stage of transition, which is the space in between. Again, the space of not what was, but not yet what will be. Now, I want to know how many of you recognize this sound. Some of you, you're going to be like, uh, some of you are going to be like, what is it? But, But here's a sound. Okay, that sounds a little familiar. Got that. Uh huh. Okay. It's. 
Oh. Who remembers this sound? Dial-up modems. Now listen, I recognize if you're like 25 or under, you're like, what is that? Turn that off. That's annoying. I have no idea. The dial-up modem, right? And he's like, hey, kid, you, you would announce to the whole family, hey, I'm going online. Phone's not going to work for the next five hours. Sorry, everybody. Like it's not, and you're, you're waiting. You're like, okay, is it, is it ever going to connect? Am I, oh, okay, we're good. Now let me download that PDF. It's going to take 30 minutes. Great. It's a one-page article. It's going to take 30 minutes. And it was frustrating, right? That's the waiting period. That's the space in between. It can feel like that, like nothing is happening, like you're in limbo, just a standstill, just waiting for something to happen. And, and the reason it's different from beginnings and endings are this, because an ending or a beginning, that's like a moment in time. You can like put a stake in the ground and go, this happened on this date, and I can, I can I, we celebrate the anniversary of it or we grieve the anniversary of it. But the in-between is not that. The in-between is, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know what's going on right now. The space in-between is more like a gap in life. There's an author named Jeff Goyne who wrote a best-selling book called The In-Between. And here's what he wrote. He wrote, life is waiting. Not just waiting in line at the grocery store or waiting to renew your driver's license, but waiting to love, to commit, to find the work you were meant to do. Our lives are full of inconvenient setbacks, not due to some great cosmic mistake, but because of some divine purpose we don't comprehend. And then he ends it with this, in the waiting we become. In the waiting we become. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's where our struggle is, because most of us, if not all of us, we don't like waiting, especially when we don't know what's ahead of us. We're an instant gratification society. I want it now. I want to look it up. I want it to just like, give it to me. Bring it. Let's just get it. But that's not the waiting. How many of you are familiar with liminal spaces? You've ever heard of liminal spaces or liminality? Ooh, good. I get to educate you. All right, we got one. Suddenly I felt really smart right there. Right, here's what liminal spaces refer to or liminality. The word comes from, it's, it's a Latin word which simply means threshold. Like you're standing at the threshold, you're, you're leaving something, but you're not quite into the new yet, and it means threshold. And it was first picked up in anthropology back in the early 1900s by a guy named Arnold Van Gennep, and he wrote about rites of passage, like from adolescence to adulthood or, or marriage, and, and the, this transformation he wrote had a three-part structure, and here's what he wrote. It had a separation, a liminal period and a reassimilation. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? A separation, an ending, a liminal period, an in-between, and a reassimilation, a beginning. It's a transition. Liminality is a transition. Later in the century, in a book called Liminality and Communitas by Victor Turner, he defined liminal individuals. And here's what he defined liminal individuals as. They are neither here nor there. They're between the positions assigned and arrayed by law, custom, convention, ceremony. But they're in this middle ground. They're in this middle side. So that's how anthropology looks at liminality. Architecture deals with liminal space also. 
And architecture deals with it in this concept of sort of like it's a, trans, a transformative threshold between two distinct places. It's, it's taking you from one place and taking you to the next. And here are some examples of how architecture uses liminal spaces. The first would be a stairwell or an elevator. It's not your final destination. It's taking you to where you want to go. You know, you don't go into a stairwell and just hang out and be like, hey, how's it going? Now, if you do that, that's creepy, okay? Don't do that, you know? And, and an escalator. Here's something about an escalator. Do you know what you call a broken escalator? Stairs. Walk up, okay? You don't have to go find an elevator. There's a, but they are not our final destination. They're to get you from one place to another. Another example of liminal space is a parking lot. A parking lot is usually not your final destination, right? Unless you're more about the tailgate party than the actual game or something like that. But the parking lot is, hey, I got myself here, I'm leaving this here, and now I'm headed in there. I was in a parking lot last night. I was at the Shoreline Amphitheater, and if you've ever been there, it's like dirt, and when cars are driving through, there's dust everywhere. I do not want to stay in the, I want to get out of the parking lot as fast as I can. But a parking lot is a liminal space. A third example is this, an airport terminal. How many of you have ever experienced a long flight delay somewhere? There's some travelers in here. What are airport terminals not designed for? Comfort, <laughs> entertainment, rest, anything like that. An airport terminal is designed, hey, you're parked, you're headed, now we're going to get you on a plane, and you're going to get out of here. You're going to go somewhere else. An airport terminal is a liminal space. It's a, it's a waiting space. Now get in there. Now get out of here. Let's go. Liminal spaces are spaces in between. They're not final destinations. Sometimes they can feel like it, but a liminal space is a space in between. Uh, I mentioned to you last week, within a period of a year, year and a half, I went through two major life transformations together. And I entered into what I would call my liminal season, my liminal space that honestly just ended about two, two and a half years ago. And it was a time of, okay, I don't work there anymore. Uh, I'm not in that marriage anymore, but I don't know what's ahead of me. It was a time where I'm like, I, all I'd ever done since leaving college was be, work at a church, be a pastor. I'm like, I don't even know if I want to do that anymore. I don't know about this. And it was just this, okay, just navigating like, I don't know what's next. It was a liminal season. Many of us today are in liminal seasons. Okay, Scott, I, I know it ended. I still don't feel like anything has begun, and I'm with you. I'm not sure where I'm at right now. Like there's the gap in life. And often in liminal spaces, we have the feeling we're just on the verge of something. It's that threshold, but we're not quite there yet. It's just not quite in focus yet. I just can't quite reach out and grab it yet. And that's where we're going to pick up in our story with Naomi and Ruth today. Last week, we saw their endings. Last week, we saw eight tragic endings in the life of Naomi. And we saw them begin to head back, head back, her and Ruth, back to Bethlehem, back to where Naomi was from, going, well, this is over. We don't know what's next, but I guess that's where we've got to go. And so we're going to reach back into chapter 1 to pick up with Ruth, and then we're going to jump into chapter 2 to see how they began to navigate the space in between, the liminal space of life. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1 to start. If you can open it up in the app if you want. If not, don't worry about it. Scripture is going to be up on the screen. But uh, Ruth chapter 1, picking up in verse 16, it says this. But Ruth replied, 
Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Speaking to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. So she's not leaving a lot of wiggle room in there. Verse 18, Naomi realized that she was determined to go with her, so she stopped urging her to basically leave. Ruth is making a decision right here. She goes, all right, I don't have a husband anymore. I've left my family. I'm here with you, Naomi, like, I, I guess I'm going to go with you. And she says, where you go, I will go. Now, what's amazing about that is this. Ruth is leaning into an uncertain future, headed to an unknown land where all she knows is one person, literally one person. She's going into a foreign culture where she enjoys few, if any, rights. And because of the animosity between the Israelites and the Moabites, almost guaranteed to face ethnic prejudice. And she's willingly walking into it. She's willingly heading into it. No, Naomi, I'm with you. I'm going with you. I'm not going to go anywhere else. And we don't know necessarily what Ruth's faith is at this point. Some would say, oh, man, Ruth, by that declaration, she's leaned into God. She has a faith in God now. She's a believer in God. And others would say, man, we, we really don't know. We really don't. I think either way, it's a beautiful picture. Maybe Ruth, a Moabite woman, different religion from Naomi, watching Naomi's life, watching how she handled these endings was like, man, that's how you navigate through all this. I want to serve your God. And maybe she leaned into a faith in God. That's awesome. Maybe she hadn't yet. Maybe she goes, I just know I don't have anything here. I might as well follow after you. That's a beautiful thing too, because I think God honors either one. And maybe even if she didn't have this full faith in God yet, she's leaning into a belief that, okay, well, but you seem to be leaning into your God, so I'm going to follow after that. And here's where we begin to see the first thing about the space in between, how we navigate liminal spaces. And it's in the space in between that we learn to trust an unknown future to a knowing God. We learn to trust an unknown future to a knowing God. Now, I'm going to give you a big spiritual word right now that you can impress all your friends with or you can scare them with. Either one. It depends what your friends are like, okay? I had a professor in college who would call these kind of words $80 words. So it's a big, expensive spiritual word for you. Here's a big spiritual word. It's an attribute of God. It's God's omniscience. God's omniscience. Here's what that word means. That means God is all-knowing. All-knowing. Past present, and future. God knows it all. Now you think, okay, past, big deal, Scott, not that impressive. Like, I got Google. I can find out anything about the past I want. I can tell you right now it's at my fingertips. Okay, so we got history, we got all that. Present, we're living the present right now. I mean, we're experiencing the present. We know what the present is like. Okay, so, so God's still got one on us. He knows the future. God knows what is yet to be. The psalmist tells us that he knows the number of stars. He calls them by name. Joseph understood the sense that God even knows the future. So Joseph, not getting into a big story, but after he's been sold by his brothers and, you know, he's Potiphar's house and he's in prison, then he's out of prison, and now he's the second in command of all of Egypt, and his brothers show back up because there's a famine in the land, and they don't realize it's Joseph, and instead of being, you know, like, oh, you guys were jerks to me, I got all the power now, I'm going to take out vengeance on you, he goes, guys, come here, it's me, it's your brother, I love you, and they have 
have this big thing. But here's what Joseph understood about the knowledge, the omniscience of God, where Joseph says this to his brothers. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Guys, way back in the day when you were being jerks to me, remember that time? Remember when you beat me and threw me in the pit? They're like, yeah, we remember Joseph. No, remember you like you ripped my jacket off me and like, yeah, we get it. Because God knew even then. God knew this moment would come and he put me here for this moment. Jesus predicting his own death and resurrection. And here's what's important about this. Looking at this attribute of God, God's omniscience, that he knows the past, the present, and the future, we can trust an unknown future to a knowing God. In 2006, I was in Kenya, Africa. I'd taken a group of high school students over there, and we were working with an orphanage that rescued street kids, like literally kids, Two years, I mean, it was rescuing them off the street. And, and we're working with these kids. We're there for about two weeks. At the end of this trip, we had scheduled a safari in the Maasai Mara National Reserve. And I was excited. I'm like, oh, man, all I've ever seen is animals in zoos. This is going to be amazing. And so we load up in these minivans, basically, that were our kind of transportation around, and we take off. And it's a six-hour drive from where we were to the Maasai Mara National Refuge. And if you've ever been to Kenya, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful country. Here's the thing about Kenya. Roads, there are none. Like, literally, there are none. Once you get outside of the cities, there are no roads. And driving, it was just more comfortable to keep your eyes closed because then you didn't feel like you were going to die every other minute. Because cars, you know, it's not like lanes. It's just like, who's going to turn first? And, you know, just dust everywhere, just flying. And so we're on this trip to Maasai Mara, and we're driving, and we're driving, and we're driving, and we're driving. And about four hours into this trip, I'm looking around, I'm thinking... There's not like another car in sight. I don't think there has been for an hour or two now. There is no road whatsoever. And I'm starting to get a little worried. I'm starting to wonder, like, does the driver really know where we're going? Does he? And like, I'm going to be responsible. Like, there's this newscast going to hit America like, stupid pastor loses 10 teenage kids in the jungle. You know, like, what's five hours into this drive, we're literally driving through trees now. Like trees, like we're watch out for this, and, and there's it's grass, there's no road, and I lean up to the guy. I fully like he's lost, he's lost. He won't tell us we're going to run out of gas and die here. We will become food for the lions, is what's going to happen about it. And I lean up, I'm like, dude, do you know where you're going? You do know where you're going, right? It was a question and then a plea. Like you do know where you're going. I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. We finally made it. We finally got there. But I had no idea where we were going. I didn't know the directions. I didn't know the route. I didn't know the navigation. I lost trust in him. He knew where he was going. And that's us in the liminal space. That's us in the space in between. We can trust an unknown future to a knowing God. Psalm 37.3 says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Feed on his faithfulness. And then a few chapters later, Psalm 46.10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. It's one of these verses, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, it's like, oh, I've heard that verse before. It's this comfort, it's this encouragement, right? Be still and know that I am God. And it is. In fact, if you're in the liminal space and right now you're just dealing with the uncertainty and, and everything that goes around with that, the worry and the fear, here's one of the best exercises you can ever do. We're going to do this together, okay? Psalm 46.10. We're going to say this together. Say it with me. Be still and know 
that I am God. Now we're going to shorten it. We're going to drop a word off the end. Be still and know that I am. I drop another one. Be still and know that I. Another one. Be still and know. Another one. Say it with me. Be still. Final one. Be. You see, what the psalmist is trying to get across to us is that in the uncertainty, in the unknown, in trying to navigate where I can't even see, there's not a clear destination ahead of me, we can trust a knowing God. We can be still. We can be at peace in the midst of chaos around us. And what's beautiful about this psalm is it is an encouragement to be still, but the context that it was written in actually gives this idea of, listen, snap out of it. Wake up. Stop fearing. Acknowledge who our God is. He's all-knowing, and we can trust him. So the story of Ruth goes on in chapter 2. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go for it, go daughter. And she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, greeted the harvesters. Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And Boaz asked the overseers of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And she came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So two widows, no means of support, no real plan except we're heading back to Bethlehem, show back up, confused probably, disoriented, maybe even paralyzed to certain degrees emotionally or, or in other ways where it's like we don't even know what to do next. And in, in the in-between, we can find this sometimes like, I just, I just don't know what to do, and I, and I don't know the next step to take. And it's when we're in the in-between, not knowing what to do, that here's the next key for us. When we don't know what to do next, we do the next best thing. When we don't know what to do next, we do the next best thing. Ruth is probably looking around going, uh, well, we got to eat, like, Life at its barest minimum is we've got to have some food. So let me go out into a field. Let me just see what I can scrape up. Let me see what I can. Naomi's like, great idea. Go for it, girl. Get out there. And so she goes out and she, and she gets into this field. And she's like, man, is this going to be the rest of life? Is this, I'm just gonna be like scraping by to, to find something to eat. And she goes out in this field. And I love this phrase, as it turned out. As it turned out, she ends up in a field belonging to Boaz, a relative of her deceased father-in-law. As luck would have it, what are the chances of that? To believe the coincidence that that's the field? She, it's a random choice. She probably looked um, that field. Let's just take that one. Is that how it worked out? 
I don't believe God works in coincidences. I don't believe God just works in these random events. It's like, whoa, wasn't expecting that one. All right, let's take a left turn here. Here we go. I don't think that's how our God works. And yet Ruth, in not knowing what to do next, just did the very the next thing she knew how to do. She's like, well, we got to eat. Let me just go out. And God puts her in the very place that would provide. See, one of the keys of this is great because here's what we need to understand. In the in-between space, in the unknown of it, sometimes we can pull back and maybe it's because we're paralyzed emotionally or spiritually or just, we, you know, we just can't make our decision and we're like, okay, God, it's, it's on you now. Like you have to make it happen or you have to tell me what to do before I can go. Sometimes it's God like, no, just go. Like just do. Do what you need to do. Move. You see, in the in-between, we have a sense of responsibility also. And God will guide us. That knowledge that he has, we can trust the unknown to a knowing God. God's going to lead us and guide us, but we have to act upon it. You see, God's sovereignty runs hand in hand with our responsibility. And Ruth is just doing the, very, the, the next best thing she knew how to do. Let's go out and let's gather. When you don't know what to do, do the next best thing thing. So verse 15, the story goes on. She rose to glean, and Boaz instructed his young men, saying, hey, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach. Don't stop her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Don't rebuke her. So she, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. You see, God put her in the very place she needed to be to provide for their needs. And this was not easy labor. You know, it's not like they climbed in their big harvester tractor and just started driving down. You know, like, I would never want to be a farmer, but there's an OCD side of me that loves the lines they make. And it's like perfect. I'm like, man, I would love to climb in one of those things. I mean, no, and, you know, they're out there with sickles and knives and just chopping stuff down. And as they would do this and the harvesters would come through picking it up, some would get left. And Boaz is actually doing something God had commanded the Israelites long time before going, hey, when you harvest, leave some. Don't like wipe the field clean. Leave some for the poor, for the disadvantaged, for those who don't have something. Leave it for them so they can come glean after you. And so Ruth is out there in the sun picking up literally just grains of wheat that the harvester had missed, just trying to get some. And Boaz, seeing this, he's like, hey, guys, don't stop or let her do it. And in fact, when you're getting your stuff together, like, Throw some out the back. Like, leave her a little bit extra. Leave her a little bit more. And we're told at the end of this day, she gathers together an ephah of grain. Now, this, you know, as a gleaner, a gleaner, you're not going to get out there. You're not going to gather much. But at the end of this day, because of the kindness of Boaz, because Ruth has done the next best thing and found herself in the exact place God put her, she gathered 20 to 40 pounds of grain, enough to feed them for 10 to 12 days, it's estimated. That's the faithfulness of God. 
Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter 6, where he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? You see, the in-between can be a time of hardship. There's no way I'm going to discount that. It can be a time of extreme hardship, but hardship is not hopelessness. And our endurance opens us to God's faithfulness. Our endurance in the in-between, the space, the liminal space, opens up God's faithfulness. Now, For some of you, you've been around the church long enough, and you've heard all the church Bible stories, and you're thinking, oh, man, like, this story sounds familiar. It's not the first time something like this has happened in the Bible. If you haven't been around the church long, you don't really know Bible stories, don't worry about it. It's okay. But some of you are thinking, this is a lot like what God did with the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt. And we're not going to dive down into that story, but basically the story recap, you know, Scott House Abridged Version is this. The Israelites have been slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. God gets Moses, does his thing in him. There's the story of the burning bush, really cool story, and sends Moses back to Egypt and says, hey, go get my people, get them out. Moses shows up, meets with Pharaoh, says, hey, I'm here to get the Israelites, and we're heading out, and Pharaoh goes, ha! (laughs) And then there's the plagues and all that kind of stuff. Finally gets to the point where Pharaoh's like, I am sick of y'all. Like, get out of here. Just go. And so Moses is like, we did it. And they gather the people, and they start heading out. And then Pharaoh's like, no, you know what? I'm a little upset by how this whole thing went down. Let's just wipe them all out. And so he starts chasing them, and they end up in the Red Sea. And this is that great scene in The Prince of Egypt. You know, Disney, you all have seen the movie, I'm sure. You know, and they're the Red Sea, and the Israelites are trying to get through. They're like, come on, let's go. And the Egyptians follow them in. The sea closes up and kills all the Egyptians. The Israelites are on the other side like, ah. They've made it. They're out. Great story, right? Not the end. Within a matter of days, the Israelites are complaining. God has been faithful. God's let them out. He begins to provide for them. There's manna. There's water. There's a cloud to lead them and fire at night. All this kind of stuff. And finally, they meander their way towards the promised land. It's right there. And they send spies. And the spies come back. And most of them are like, we can't do it. There's just no way we can do it. And because of their lack of trust in God, even as God provided for them, even as he directed them, a trip that should have taken days ended up taking decades. Because they didn't trust. They didn't believe. They didn't follow. And you follow the story of the Israelites, and it becomes the wilderness story. The wilderness becomes a liminal space for the Israelites as they navigate around the wilderness for 40 years. Because they couldn't and didn't trust God in the very beginning of it. And that's where the wilderness we begin to understand early, early on in the stories of the Bible becomes this metaphor for transformation inside of us. The wilderness. And that's what the space in between feels like for many of us. It's a wilderness. I am out here sweating under the sun. I am dying out here. And I don't know where this is headed, but that's the wilderness. You see, God is working a plan. God was working a plan for the Israelites. God is working a plan for Ruth and Naomi. But we don't see it in the midst of the wilderness. But God is working a plan. 
And just because it doesn't work itself out like we think it's going to doesn't mean God is not at work. And the part of the story the Israelites I want to look at is fast forward 40 years into their story. They're once again standing at, at the, the entrance to the promised land. Then they're getting ready to like get out of the wilderness finally. And here's what Joshua says to them. Joshua chapter 3 verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. He and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan. And they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp and commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So they're standing at the end. They've been camping, and they're gathering their stuff in the city called Shittim. Now listen, right away, there's two groups of people in this. First group of people is, I cannot believe you just said that in church. And the second group of people are giggling internally like junior high kids right now, okay? So for the first group, I'm going to say, listen, it's in the Bible. That's all I'm going to say, okay? And the second group is this, grow up, all right? Grow up. I have a really funny story, but I don't have time to tell you about that passage, so we're just going to move on right there. But they're gathering up their stuff, and Joshua says, listen, when we go, we're going to follow the ark of God. The ark of God, the covenant of God, was this, this chest that held some very important stuff for the Israelites. It held this, the tablets that had the Ten Commandments, God's covenant with his people on them. It, it, it held a little bit of manna, that what God had provided for the Israelites to, to sustain them, to feed them through the wilderness. And it held Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod in the story is when Moses first goes to the Pharaoh, and Moses, or Pharaoh says to him, prove to me who you are, and he throws down the rod and it becomes a snake. That would be so cool if I could do that in church. But it's probably not going to happen. But that's what's in the ark. And, and Joshua is saying to the people, follow that. Because we're about to head a direction we've never gone before. We're about to experience things we've never experienced before. We're about to do something we've never done before. And I'm not totally certain of this, but here's what I am certain about. We're going to follow after God. We are going to go after him. And Joshua is telling the people when they see God leading them, go after it. Follow him. Pursue him. Chase him. Don't lose sight of him. That's what we need to do in the space in between, in the liminal space. Because it's a place we've not gone before. It's a path we've not walked before. It's a season of life we've not experienced before. And just as for the Israelites, the same is true for us. We lean into a God who is in it with us and will lead us if we go after him, if we follow him into and through unknown territory. Now to wrap this up, five quick encouragements, and I mean quick. They're going to be quick. Five quick encouragements for the space in between. Number one is this. We've said it multiple times. Lean into God. Lean into God. Embracing the sacredness of the liminal space gives God that space to transform us to change us, to renew us, to do his work inside of us. But we have to lean in to God in the liminal space. Number two, anticipate discomfort. Just, just expect it. Get ready for it. There's anxiety. Things don't work out the way you think. Motivation falls. Like, I got courage for today. And then you get the one phone call and you're like, and now I'm giving up. You know, it's like, it's going to happen. Anticipate discomfort. 
but trust that you're on the threshold and that you're not alone. God is with you. Third, find what continuity you can. Find the things in life that can and do remain the same and hold on to those things. Some of the greatest which are going to be relationships. And that is why I can't encourage you enough to be involved in a small group. To get involved with a group of people where you're doing life together. Because in the midst of unknown circumstances, those are the people who are going to stand alongside you. But find continuity. Fourth, mark the milestones along the way. Milestones are this. Milestones are that moments where God has shown up, where you can put that spike in the ground and go, on this date, here's what God did. Here's how God provided. Here's what God showed me. Here's how God spoke to me. Mark those milestones because when you face the next challenge, when you face the next obstacle, you can look back and see the milestones along the way and go, that's where God was with me. That's where God was with me. That's where God was with me. I know he's going to be here with me today. Mark the milestones along the way. And the final one is this. Be patient with the process and yourself. Be patient with the process and yourself. Because it's in the space in between. It's in the liminal space where the greatest transformation takes place within us. As we allow God to move within us. But we have to be patient. It's not going to go according to our time schedule, our time frame, our desires. So be patient with the process and with yourself. Now next week, we get to the final part of the transformation process and the transitions that go on inside of us. And we're going to end with the beginnings that we face. But this week, our challenge, especially for those of us in the liminal space, in the, the space in between, is to lean into God. Trust you're unknown with an all-knowing God. Do the next best thing you know how to do and endure and find God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, one of the greatest encouragements we can have and you've given to us is the knowledge that in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of the unknown, you are there with us. You're not just watching from a far off place hoping we can figure it out, but you are in the midst of it with us. And Father, for all of us in this place here today who are in a space in between, who are in between, you know, an ending that has happened in our lives, and there's not yet been a beginning, and there's, there's doubt, there's uncertainty, there are challenges, there are hardships, there is pain. Lord, I pray that you would move in the midst of all of us making yourself known, Lord, in, in just very real, tangible ways, not just some, you know, esoteric way, but in reality that you are with us, Father, providing, directing, guiding us, Lord Jesus, that we would find strength in that to move through the space to the beginnings that you have ahead of us, Lord. Let our confidence be in you and you alone. In your name we pray. Everyone said Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.